Good morning, everybody. It's Jeff, and it is Wednesday, September 27th. And um, I may have said that one of my original inspirations for doing this podcast was to call it This Morning in the New York Times, because I have been reading the New York Times for um, as long as it's been delivered in Colorado. And uh, it's my morning ritual, and I read it and, you know, sometimes think integral thoughts. So <laughs> I just thought it'd be fun to share that. So anyway, this morning in the New York Times, we see a really interesting article that I think raises a lot of interesting integral issues. And that is, oh, hang on, let me turn on that light. There we go. Is that better? Maybe a little bit. Um, it's, it's an article about the Colorado River is suing the United States of America. And um, I'll read just a little bit from it. It's, it's happening here in Denver. And it starts, does a river or a plant or a forest have rights? This is the essential question in what attorneys are calling a first of its kind federal lawsuit. The suit was filed Monday, two days ago, in federal district court here in Colorado by Jason Flores Williams, who is a well-known uh, kind of lefty lawyer in Denver who files on uh, behalf of the environment, the homeless and so forth. And uh, it names the river ecosystem as the plaintiff and, uh, and charges that Colorado and our governor Hickenlooper are liable for violating the river's quote, right to exist, flourish, regenerate, be restored, and naturally evolve. And um, uh, Flores Williams uh, talks about it. He says, if a corporation has rights, so too should an ancient waterway that has sustained human life for as long as it has existed in the Western United States. So uh, I'm gonna go a little further into this, but first I just want you to take a minute and think about how that hits you. You know, how does this idea of the Colorado River suing for these reasons land? And uh, you'll notice that you might have a green self that's really sympathetic. Uh, I do. My heart kind of loves it. I mean, it feels it softens my heart. It, it expands me. You know, I notice that we want to notice these things. My head's not so sure, <laughs> you know, because there's always something sort of hiding in the fine print. And but we're going to look at that. Uh, but it's also interesting, you know, if you uh, uh, listen to Jonathan Haidt, who a lot of integralists do, I, I think he's terrific. You know, his basic thesis is we have emotional reactions to ideas and then we set about organizing our arguments to support that. And I think there's some truth to that. So it always pays. Uh, as an integral practitioner, to just feel into things first, just notice, uh, instead of just keep going and, you know, start building the edifice. So with that said, so let's use integral theory as a way of sorting out and looking at the pieces of this. So we see, first of all, that there are perspectives on this that arise out of all of the stages of development that are online, you know, the major ones. And we hear from the right, uh, from the Senator Steve Daines of Montana. And he says, this is ridiculous. 
I think we can all agree rivers and trees are not people. Radical obstructionists who contort common sense with this sort of nonsense undercut credible conservationists. So let me just read that last part again. Radical obstructionists, who he's calling the the plaintiffs here, um, who contort common sense with this sort of nonsense, they undercut credible conservationists. So that's the, you know, sort of probably center right. Um, We also, it mentions in the article that there is a, um, uh, there was a case back in the 70s Uh, that was heard before the Supreme Court, where the Sierra Club wanted to block a ski resort in the Sierras uh, because of the the rights of the trees. And the the suit lost in the Supreme Court. This was in 1972. Uh, But Justice William Douglas, who's, you know, sort of a great famous liberal justice, uh, wrote a dissent that became famous. And in it, he said... um, He embraced the view that natural objects should be recognized as legal parties, which could be represented by humans who could sue on their behalf. That's mainstream. That's a, you know, justice of the Supreme Court. So there's that perspective and and that's in the justice system. And they point out in the article that uh, outside of the United States, this idea of uh, natural objects being uh, worthy of, of personhood in the legal system is getting traction in other countries. And just a little paragraph here. It says, in Ecuador, the Constitution now declares that nature, quote, has the right to exist, persist, maintain, and regenerate its vital cycles, unquote. Uh, In New Zealand, officials declared in March, just a few months ago, that a river used by the Maori tribe of the Wanganui in the North Island is a legal person that can sue if it is harmed. So it's happening in other parts of the world. Um, So there's sort of that perspective where it's sort of getting some mainstream kind of traction. Uh, and then there's the deep green resistance, which is green, comes from the postmodern meme. It's green and in our uh, altitudes of development. And they are filing a friend of the court brief in supporting um, Flores Williams case that just came up in Colorado. So they're an official party to this case. And uh, they um, call this is how they describe themselves. Deep Green Resistance believes that the mainstream environmental movement has been ineffective and that industrial civilization is fundamentally destructive to life on Earth. This is from their website. This is them. I'll I'll read that first part again. Deep Green Resistance believes that the mainstream environmental movement has been ineffective and that industrial civilization, this is modernity, excuse me, is fundamentally destructive to life on Earth. The group's task, according to its website, is to create a resistance movement that will dismantle industrial civilization by any means necessary. So, you know, the by any means necessary part kind of makes me a little nervous. Uh, But, you know, as integralists, we want to see the piece of the truth of all of these perspectives. 
you know, the perspective of the you know conservative senator that come on, you know, common sense. I mean, and and really, from a political point of view, uh, what percentage of the population is going to really be sort of uh, sympathetic to this? Not many, you know. Certainly, two thirds aren't. Uh, the, um, the, the I talked about the, the mainstream, but but also the deep green resistance who has a vision of the world where, where we are living in a sustainable environment uh, and that we are a harmonious part of that and we take care of it and we submit to that as, you know, a submission to Mother Nature. Um, and that is very beautiful. I think they undervalue uh, modernity and all of the goodies of modernity, but they see something that modernity doesn't. Um, and, and that's actually what's happening here. And that's what's happening in development in general is development is an ever expanding circle of what you have an I thou relationship with instead of an I it relationship. And we've been talking about psychopaths earlier this week, and psychopaths have an I-it relationship with other people. They actually don't feel the interiority of other people. But as we expand from our tribe to our clan, to our nation, to the world, um, you know, we, we could further expand to include, and this is, of course, Green's specialty is to go back and include the people who have been left out of the earlier stages. So we start having, and this is happening, it's, it's astonishing in my lifetime, how we have I-thou relationships now with animals. Not with farm animals, but with our pets. I mean, it's progress, it's something. Uh, and we can have I-thou relationships with plants, you know. I mean, so th th these are things that we can work, work on. Uh, but what uh, green and what deep greed resistance sees is a global, they're world centric. So they see that there is a limit to this planet. Orange doesn't really see that. Orange sort of sees that you can get, you know, minerals from the Congo and you can ship them and, and move them to China where they're manufactured and assembled here and sold the United States. And they get the globe in that way, but they don't get the globe in terms of this sort of interiority, uh, the interiority of the cultures that they're exploiting, the interiority of the, the planet itself. And this gets into um, some sort of theoretical conundrum that I'll get to in a second, but I just want to, um, uh, mentioned that this whole idea is really significant in the sense that if we have an I-thou relationship with nature or with a, the Colorado River, and if you go out in nature, it's pretty hard not to, you know, you just feel it in these lower chakras. There's a lot of antenna for just the spirit of nature. That makes this a, a judicial case because the judicial is the branch of our government that determines uh, the rights of persons. Uh, before, all the judicial could do was sort of adjudicate disputes that were legislative. So they'd 
you know, the ranchers versus the oil companies versus the environmentalists. They could mediate the claims of competing humans and, of course, corporations, because corporations are people, too. Um, as he mentioned, you know, when I read that paragraph, I thought, you know, he's got a point. And it reminded me of one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons where it shows the business guy and he's sitting there and he's reading a story to his son who's in bed, you know, surrounded by his stuffed animals. And, and he's reading the story and the story goes, and the corporation was very lonely because people thought it was different from them. So I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> that was back during the Citizens United days. But, uh, but this is sort of a time-honored strategy of a political movement is, you know, when you're not finding, um, you know, favorable results in the legislature, uh, you go to the judiciary and you find new rights. And, you know, we just had one a year or so ago where they found the right to gay marriage, that gay people should be able to be full citizens and get married. Uh, gay marriage, which would have horrified the men who wrote the Constitution. You know, so, of course, several of them were slaveholders. This is just sort of the craziness of history, you know, but things evolve. Culture evolves. This is a tenet of integral theory. Uh, it, it cuts both ways. The gun, gun lobby has found all kinds of rights in the Constitution that, to me, are plainly not there. And they talk about, you know, the plain reading of the Constitution. And I love that because it's like anybody can do that. You know, any good citizen could do that. And the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people have to bear uh, keep and bear arms should not be infringed. So I don't know where the well-regulated militia part is. You know, I mean, it's right there in the Constitution, but any yay who can go out and buy any kind of, you know, gun they want. And so I don't know. But anyway, you know, people finding rights in the Constitution is, a, again, a time-honored strategy of political, political movements. And now, you know, we're finding rights for, you know, nature, uh, if, if this works, uh, you know, the, the, they talked about the legal experts don't think it's going to work. It doesn't have much of a chance, but it's get, it gets publicity to have this kind of an article in the front section of the New York Times. I don't see what page it is, but it's right up there. You know, this creates new grooves in the cosmos, new grooves for people to be thinking about. And that is itself progress. Now, I mentioned that there was a, um, a, a slight technical problem uh, from, with, use, with integral theory, and that is that um, rivers don't technically have an interior. They're not holons. They don't have consciousness. The atoms in the river do. The, the molecules in the rocks do, but not the river itself. Uh, and... Uh, one of the, I think, really interesting uh, 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 parts of integral theory, aqua theory that Ken Wilber developed, is that dominant monads, uh, the, the, the holons, the, the top of the holon heap are people, and then animals, they have interiority, plants have interiority, down to cells, and, you know, 
if you don't think cells have interiority, you, you need to watch this video I saw on Reddit of, oh, it was a, you know, magnified, it was a white blood cell chasing after a bacteria. And they were like, you know, almost catching each other and hiding and going around. It was like Pac-Man. And I don't know, it seemed like they were having fun. So, you know, they have an intentionality. And then Adams, you know, uh, I, I always love the quote from um, Richard Feynman, the great physicist, that, that said, you know, when you really look at how atoms operate, the only word that could come to mind is they're being playful. There's just no other way to figure out what they're doing. And I love that. So anyway, can something that's not sentient have rights? And again, uh, you know, this is not a, a legal argument. I'm just making a little technical point here. But again, anybody who goes into nature of any kind, there's almost no, I was, uh, no ugly nature. I, was, I asked one of my friends, is there ugly nature anywhere? He said, maybe the tar pits. But, I, you know, I could see beauty there. So there is something that is alive in nature that we could feel and we can sort of wrap our hearts around. And, um, and so, you know, one of the great things I think about being an integral practitioner is we don't have to contract around any of these perspectives. We can see that these perspectives are in the field fighting it out right on schedule. And that, uh, you know, we want them to, to, we want to appreciate the piece of the truth that's in all of these perspectives. And, you know, if we have to make a binary choice, we vote and we, we do our thing and, and we, you know, protest. And, but we, we have a, more, a, a spacious um, friendliness to the, you know, to the fight itself. And, um, you know, that's something. All right. <laughs> so if anybody has any questions or comments, um, you know, raise your hand. Uh, Corey, you can handle that, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, for everyone who's actually with us on the Zoom app, you have the option to raise your hand if you want to participate and talk to Jeff directly. Um, Jeff, while we're waiting, you know, it occurs to me that we're having a lot of really interesting national conversations right now about what exactly constitutes a right. And, you know, the conservative stance that has, you know, sort of won the day so far is that, you know, rights belong to the individual and they're typically defined by not what, not what you are empowered to do, but what the government is disallowed from taking from you. Um, and that, you know, tends to be sort of the, the, the standard argument here. Now we have Bernie Sanders talking about healthcare as a right, which is obvious that that's a completely different category of rights, because that is the type of right that depends on the existence of a society, the existence of a social container to help deliver, you know, whatever resources to, to meet your needs. Um, you know, and we see, we see the argument you know, sort of people coming at the argument from all sides from corporate personhood, which is, you know, trying to empower a lower right sort of conglomeration of human beings um, as if it was an individual. Um, you know, but, but for me, my litmus test, particularly as it, as it, you know, not my litmus test, I should say my Rosetta stone for this uh, has, has, is, you know, right there in um, the declaration of 
independence, where we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what that means to me is I think that there's, you know, that was intentionally phrased as a hierarchy. So I have the right to pursue my happiness, but not at the expense of your liberty. I have the right to liberty, but not at the expense of your life. And to me, this gives, uh, you know, again, just sort of a, a Rosetta Stone to help to help prioritize what our rights should be, what they should reflect, how they should empower us. And to me, as direct relevance to the healthcare debate. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a, a couple terms uh, that uh, we can use here. Um, one is de facto and one is de jure. Yeah. Uh, and and um, we have two sets of rights. You know, we have the right, the, the de jure, the, the rights that are written into the law. And and there's no right written into the law yet that everybody has a right to health care. Uh, although there actually is in the sense that no hospital can turn anybody away. And, and, you know, the emergency rooms, it's very ineffective. It's very expensive. It's 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 very suboptimal. But you really won't die on the streets, you know, of most cities uh, without being taken care of. But then there's the de facto rights, you know, where it's just we get um, our moral development grows. And I think back during the Depression that there just came a time where people did not want to see old ladies selling apples on the street corner. You know, there was a time where that just be, it, be, it became just morally repulsive to see children coming out of mines, to see uh, people being bought and sold. I mean, all of a, all, it's all of human history. And then all of a sudden it's morally repulsive. It's interesting. Yeah. And so that's um, that's what's in play here now with uh, the healthcare. It's like how. Are, are we going to have a, a, a class of people that are left out of the the, the optimal system, you know, or, or in this sort of the jungle system, but it's still there, but it's, it, you know, and, and that becomes less and less tenable as we become more and more, you know, as, as we expand our, a circle of who's worthy of moral consideration, who's worthy of a decent life. How do we define that? Uh, and that is something that we are going to fight about for a while. But it's come to a head, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. Yeah, it really has. And it's exciting. Yeah. And the fortunate thing is that more interesting conversations are beginning to emerge. Well, uh, thanks to Bernie Sanders, single payer is not a, a laugh line. It's not a punchline. Yeah. yeah. It's no longer and that. Yep. That's progress. Yep. That's progress. You know, uh, New York times had a two page spread uh, a couple days ago about all of the healthcare systems in the world and sort of putting one up against the other and sort of like a March madness thing. And it was really helpful. I mean, this is, this is how evolution, cultural evolution happens. We, you know, I always love how Ken define consciousness. It's what are you able to see? Mm. What are you able to take into account? And so now I can take into account the Swiss system versus the German system. That's right. You know, that's really progress. And a lot of people can. So the beat goes on, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
<laughs> love it. Yeah, love it too. So I guess we're good for the day. Yeah, I think so. Doesn't look like yeah. anyone has any questions. Uh, everyone is just clearly blown away by your presentation. I am glad I got that all straightened out for everybody. <laughs> Finally. All right, so see you tomorrow. And we'll look at something else. Sounds great. All right. Thank you, Jeff.